0: second episode of the Americans for Science podcast. This is Stefan Neidenbach from the Americans for Science and the We Love GMOs and Vaccine pages. I wanted to start this week to talk about some major setbacks to the anti-GMO movement. The FDA officially denied the Center for Food Safety, more specifically Andrew Kimbrell's, petition to label any food containing genetically modified organisms. And their denial does several things. It lists Pretty much every reason why the anti-GMO movement has no merit to begin with. they constantly cherry-picking information they put into the petition. They can't come up with an argument that doesn't apply to other crop. Denial even mentions the Lenape potato, which was a non-GM potato that actually caused harm to people. It lists court cases going back almost 30 years, explaining why labeling based on breeding method of a crop really is pointless. And what I think is the biggest setback, it even goes into explaining why a non-GMO label is essentially misleading the consumer. When you think about the words, non-GMO, that's saying, okay, genetically modified organism. Well, pretty much everything we eat is a genetically modified organism, so that just statement alone is completely false and without merit. Now, it wouldn't be the first time that these pseudoscience food movements have taken scientific words and twisted them and given them new meaning, just the very word organic, going back to the 1950s and 1960s with Rodal. I mean, the word organic essentially applies to any carbon-based life form. There's no reason why it should just be limited to one type of production method for food. So as the organic industry are actually fighting the word natural because it's so confusing, to the consumer, and I actually kind of agree with them, because really what is natural that we eat, not very much. I think all this complaining they're doing about the word natural is eventually going to kind of bite them in the long run. If they don't like the word natural, well, I don't really like the term non-GMO for the exact same reasons. And to be honest, I don't really like the word organic on food anyways. I think anything should be able to be called organic if it's based on some kind of carbon-based life. For that matter, is it really even organic if it's dead? Now, the other setback was the approval by the FDA of the Aqua Bounty salmon, the first genetically modified uh, fish for human consumption. And this is kind of the part where anti-GMO and anti-vaccine people have a lot in common because just like the anti-vaccine people are always talking about how they don't necessarily oppose vaccines, they just want safe vaccines, yet they would be hard-pressed to actually mention a vaccine that they would actually approve of. Uh, Same thing, uh, most anti-GMO people are always screaming about herbicide-tolerant traits being their biggest complaint. You go to any anti-GMO website and they're always listing reasons to oppose GMOs based on glyphosate. Well, here we have a GMO that has absolutely nothing to do with pesticides. It has two genes from other fish, one of which is another type of salmon. And considering an Atlantic salmon already has 40,000 genes in it, altering two of them, really shouldn't be that that big of a deal, considering all the hybrids that they're working on that are definitely shuffling around more than that. So the purpose of these genes is to enable it to grow year-round, instead of only during the spring and the summer so that it'll grow faster, and it can be harvested sooner. So they could get to the store shelves within less than two years, rather than up to three. Environmentally, there aren't too many concerns. It really can't breed with other salmon if it were to escape one of these fish farms, because they're all sterile females. Now, the developer, Aquabounty, first submitted the data back in 1996, and has since raised ten generations of fish which nobody has been eating because of all the red tape and anti-GMO activism and all the bureaucracy around genetically modified organisms. Many tons of these fish have just kind of been thrown away. But hopefully now we can move forward. And to quote Professor Juma, this isn't really even about the fish for me. You know, I'm be honest, I really don't eat much uh, seafood anyways. Uh, salmon is a little too fishy tasting for my taste, so I probably won't be trying it, um, which has nothing to do with the breeding method. I just don't happen to like salmon very much. But it's, it's the larger picture. Um, to quote Professor Juma, it is not this particular fish that is at stake. By doing so, the United States will continue to serve as a role model in the use of science-based regulation. It is only by working with countries around the world to adopt modern biotechnology can we hope for a brighter agricultural future. Through such leadership, Africa and other regions can avoid being seduced by the dim light of technological stagnation. Hopefully, if we can have consumer acceptance of products such as this fish or the new apple or the new potato coming to market, we'll show the rest of the world that there is nothing to fear. A lot of the developing countries look at us and look at these anti-GMO activists and think they need to fear crops that can be really beneficial to them. So no, the United States does not necessarily need this fish, but if by fearing it and by f- spreading myths and misinformation about this and other genetically modified organisms and crops, and we're doing real harm to these developing nations that rely on these. Whether it's BT Brinjal in Bangladesh or this Banana 21 project in Uganda, it's time for these countries to stop fearing based on what the United States is doing. I get a lot of questions on my page about uh, vaccine laws, and there's a lot of discussion about mandates. Even people that are very pro-vaccine will sometimes oppose mandating them for families, or more specifically for children. So I'd like to reach out to uh, Professor Dora Rice, a law professor in California, and a huge advocate for vaccines, to hopefully answer some questions and put some minds to ease, especially those who are pro-vaccine but might hesitate when it comes to mandatory vaccinations to get into a public school system. Now, my own personal opinion is I've always felt states and especially local school districts should have the right to decide for themselves as communities, but I've always stopped short from federal mandates um, for a variety of reasons. The first being it would definitely give cannon fodder to the conspiracy theorists out there. Anytime the federal government starts telling Americans what to do, they tend to definitely freak out over it and i fear a a, a kind of pushback there are a lot of americans that whether they're pro or anti-vaccine they don't like being told by the federal government what to do and the other i think it sets a bad precedent Uh, since the 1970s i believe or, or in the early 80s the federal government gained the power to tie funds to the states for different issues to whether or not states adopt laws the federal government wants them to for example when the united states all raised the drinking age to 21, the federal government tied that to transportation funds. So, of course, no local politician is going to turn down money from the federal government. And you can see evidence of this with uh, Common Core. Uh, There's a lot of pushback, even though I happen to like it, I think it's a good thing for our students, there's a lot of pushback against it because it's the federal government telling people what to do. So I'd hate to see some kind of major pushback against vaccines just because the federal government is tying funding to it in some way. So let's see what Professor Rice has to say. Hello. Hi, Professor Rice.
1: Yes. Hi, could you please?
0: How are you doing today?
1: Good. How are
0: you? I'm very well, very well. Um, th- thank you for agreeing to come on the show.
1: Oh, uh, thanks for
0: talking to me. We've talked a lot online, but um, tell me a little bit about your background.
1: So I'm. Initially, did my undergraduate law degree in Israel, and then I did a PhD in uh, law and social policy, jurisprudence, and social policy in UC Berkeley. And uh, after that, I started to work in UC Hastings, uh, where well, my main area of research were regulation, comparative and uh, uh, domestic, and I was also teaching torts. Then I had my first voice. So you might hear hearing in the background. Yes. And I got interested in reading parenting stuff, and I stumbled by accident over the, on, on the side that there is an anti-vaccine movement, and started reading about it, commenting online, and eventually started writing on it professionally.
0: How long have you been doing that now?
1: I found out about the anti-vaccine movement in, mid, in the middle of 2012, so not that long. Being downstairs.
0: Wow, it, it it seems like a, it's been a lot longer than that. You seem to have a lot of
1: yeah.
0: a, a lot of hatred against you on the internet. It feels like it's, yeah, it seems like a longer time from, from my point of view too. Yeah. I can't imagine my life before it. Speaking of which, d- how, has that affected your personal life much?
1: Well, it made uh, my personal time shrink. I mean, yeah. things are a lot busier with social activism on top of research and writing and and teaching.
0: I'm sure. I'm sure a lot of my uh, readers on the page get a lot of have a lot of questions about the law so this is kind of perfect perfect especially but with in regards to vaccine mandates I was, mm-hmm. lo- I was looking over some of the questions now does it become more difficult to demonstrate that the government has a compelling interest in mandating vaccines the further out we get from seeing the impacts of these diseases regularly
1: I'm going to, to actually take a step back to that because it's not clear that the government has to demonstrate a compelling interest on this issue. Uh, as your readers may or may not be aware, the initial decision on vaccination uh, requirements is the Jacobson case in 1905. Uh, and in that case, the standard was not a compelling standard. It was before the days of strict scrutiny. And basically what the court said was that individual rights had to give way before the rights of others, the rights of the community to protect against disease. And the court used what we describe as a rational basis test. today. It basically said it's part of the police power of the state, and it's up to the state to determine whether this is needed. Now, the question is, does this still hold? And it's not quite clear. Two things changed since Jacobson. One thing is that in 1940, the Supreme Court applied Freedom of religion provisions of the bill of the bill of rights to the state. Before that, it only applied to the federal government. The other thing is that since 1905, our emphasis on bodily autonomy and informed consent has risen. Now, there's two reasons that this doesn't uh, affect school mandates. So, Though, the first is that in school mandates, it's not a question of the freedom of the parents from inoculation, The parents even getting inoculated. The child is and The child doesn't have a choice either way. So bodily autonomy does not apply exactly the same way to children. never has. And, you know, religion, the court said in 1944 in a famous case called Prince of Religion, Massachusetts, doesn't apply the same way from religion. The famous quote there is: a parent is free to become a martyr himself, but that doesn't mean they have the right to martyr the child before the child is of age towards the religion. So bodily autonomy is less. That's one reason law is different, and the other reason is that school immunization uh, requirements really do lie at the intersection of two very important interests: not just the community interest and not just the child interest, but both together. The child has an interest in being protected from infectious diseases, and the community has an interest in being protected from infectious diseases. So there's a good argument that strict publicity don't apply to immunization requirements. In fact, uh, no courts actually applied them that way. That said you can certainly say that although we're less conscious of the disease, the risks haven't uh, changed that much. Mysterio still ki- kills one, one in ten, at least. That's a very high number and the state's protection against these diseases can still be very well described as a compelling interest. In fact, in 2011, the Fourth Circuit found that immunization mandate is for a compelling interest. That's workmen versus and in the Board of Education It's an unpublished
0: decision. Go on. That was a long answer to a short question, sorry. Uh, no, it's okay. A, a lot of concern out there is about whether or not the federal government is going to be getting involved. Uh, do you ever... Okay. Is there anything going from, like, state rights to federal rights? Will the federal government ever mandate it themselves? One possible way might what? be through education funds, for instance. Yes. So, first of
1: all, in terms of the rights mandate, the federal government is saying you have to immunize. Uh, I hope the federal government doesn't strike, because this is, has been traditionally a state power, and it would directly raise the question of federalism uh, and already create a lot of political problems as well. Um, in terms of the, uh, as you say, incentives, yeah, funds, that's a big, as you know, traditionally used for the federal government to promote policies it wanted, uh, and it's a very well-accepted tool. I don't see any problem with the federal government doing that. Uh, but it, it will be a political question. States might resist it for a number of reasons. One reason is that states do differ on which, which, um, that they require. There's differences among states in that. And the other thing is states may just not, not want the federal government to dictate them on this. Uh, so, again, the question will be political. Uh, legally, there's no problem with the federal government doing that.
0: And do most state laws reach to private schools as well?
1: Yes, most states do apply the laws to private schools, although there are some
0: variations in the state Can that. Can it, will it ever extend, or have there been any cases where it has extended beyond schools? Can the government ever mandate vaccines outside of school?
1: So several states have laws that uh, require vaccines for healthcare workers, require it specifically influenza vaccine, um, although only a few states, with Island, Maine, and I don't remember, I think we, I'll, I'll have to check which of states, but only a few states actually have strong enforcement of that. So several states require um, require vaccination for healthcare workers. As you may not know, California passed SB 792, which requires certain vaccines for daycare workers. And th- th- that's what's currently in place. The military requires certain vaccines as well. So there are some adult uh, vaccines in specific contexts. There's no general provision requiring vaccination at this point. Uh, so there are some provisions in, um, I don't remember the exact name of the act, but the act that allows a emergency response to health crisis that uh, allows requiring vaccination in Douglas. It hasn't been used yet, to my knowledge.
0: So there's a bit, not a lot of that. Oh, gotcha. Uh, and another reader ask, uh, asks about suing vaccine companies. Is it true that they're completely immune? Uh, suing vaccine
1: providers or manufacturers?
0: Uh, the manufacturers. So it's not
1: accurate that they're completely immune. There is limited liability protection. Uh, so as you as your viewers may know, we have a no-force program for a vaccine injuries that provide substantial benefits to people claiming they have a vaccine injury basically what they need to prove is prevention and um, damages where otherwise they would have to prove things like a design defect and things like that the, part of the compromise of making that program was giving like, manufacturers liability protection uh, at the time manufacturers were leaving the market but the liability protections are not absolute. If under a, a 2011 Supreme Court case, you can't sue for design defects in the state court at all. But if you're claiming a manufacturing defect or a war warning defect or something that is outside those, once you've gone through the program, you can sue in the court. And if you're not suing for vaccine injury, you can sue the manufacturers directly. So, for example, some of your viewers may know, there's a current and, and the key time. A, what's called um, a, a false claims act suit against the, against Merck uh, claiming that they uh, fake data related to their MMR vaccine so you can sue the manufacturers but, but there is limited liability protection
0: what was the reason that was set up
1: the, the program so in, in the 1980s there were concerns about the DTP vaccine there were the diphtheria tetanus pertussis There was a belief that it caused brain damage. Uh, Later studies didn't support that, but at the time there was uh, good reason for people, including doctors, to believe that that was the case. And lawsuits were brought against the manufacturers uh, of the vaccine, and some of them won in that jurisdiction, even with pretty week evidence. Manufacturers were leaving the market. We were down to two manufacturers, and then another one left the market, and the concern of Congress was that we will run out of particular vaccines. And children would face what was a very dangerous. It still is a very dangerous disease. I mean, so the government acted, and at the time it was supported by uh, what we what was at the time uh, parent organizations, organizations of parents that were concerned about vaccine. I don't know if they were strongly anti-vaccine at the time, so much as concerned they are today. Um, but the, the organization supported the program, because swinging the courts was extremely difficult for parents. Uh, it, it's really hard to win such a case. So that was, that was the impetus behind the act of creating the program and liability protection. I think that that's yeah, uh, what
0: you. Yeah. What do you think happened over time? Originally, they, they, they started off as concerned parents, and now they've gone to the extreme.
1: So, and uh, I think, so, to you, this isn't one scheme. At the time, we had a, a mixture of uh, parents who were very angry. Barbara or Fisher, who was one of the initial members of what was at the time decided to fight parents together and later became the National Information Center, is an example of a parent that was very angry because she believed vaccine harmed her child. Uh, and parents that, uh, but from what I'm seeing, were simply concerned. Uh, my, my reading is that for that organization, What happened was that the people who were less uh, hardcore dropped out. But I haven't, I'm saying that with some hesitation because I haven't done a thorough research project looking at this. Um, In the end, part of what's going on is that uh, the rise of autism rates created a second problem, a second push to this with a group of people who strongly believe vaccines on their child, but Either have no evidence or have evidence that go the other way. So they're facing a situation where they strongly believe they were betrayed by the medical establishment and the children were harmed, and nobody believes them. It's kind of understandable that they're frustrated, angry, upset, even if they're dangerously wrong.
0: And that seems to be the case in a lot of different medical pseudoscience, from vaccines to the chronic lying movement, this pattern of we kind of feel bad for them because they really believe this, but then yes. are there are there, interest there that's kind of taking advantage of them?
1: I, I'm pretty sure that there are. I mean, uh, there, are, of course, alternative providers that can sell all kinds of cure to parents of children can and do so. Uh, alternative cures with no spaces and no risk to parents of children with autism. I would, however, I think, however, there is a difference between uh, parents of children with autism, and, and for example the anti GMO group, and you are more of an expert on that, which is the parents of children with autism have a, have a, a disabled child that they are, are they strongly believe was directly harmed. They have a very direct very personal interest in this. I don't know if that's true of the other groups. I mean, they really uh, they're hurting just as much as they're angry. Uh,
0: moving, moving forward, almost historically, I I see some articles that look almost look at like patterns that we get to certain points where everyone starts getting comfortable, so they stop vaccinating, and mm-hmm. then and then we have outbreaks again, and then it just seems. Do you mm-hmm. do, do you see the same cycle in history, and do you think it's going to continue? So, <laughs> so um, I think
1: things change with the rise of and go the internet and the season crack, and I think that. I think uh, it's kind of hard to guess because it's been too soon but I think the decision and argument especially if there's any follow-up uh, might be a turning point because we've seen so much new legislation introduced in, in many states and it doesn't look like it's that the push for new legislation is uh, dying out I think we're going to see some more court cases on this I think we're going to see some more push for legislation for example more states pushing legislation to uh, immunized daycare workers. Where where it will go, I'm not sure. But I think uh, we are seeing some change. With
0: with international experience behind you, where where do you see the vaccine law differences between, say, Israel and the United States?
1: So I'm actually going to talk beyond it. First of all, one big difference is which countries have a no fault system and which countries don't. A recent World Health Organization article found 90 states that had uh, no-fault program, and it's much harder to sue in countries that don't have no-fault programs and uh, so one issue is how do we compensate another question is vaccine mandates and such is very dramatic so for example most European countries do not have full immunization mandates but France and, and Italy have criminal laws that make it a crime not to vaccinate uh, with certain vaccines. For example, a family has been put, in, I think, convicted in, in France for not vaccinating their young jo- daughter. Another father was acquitted because uh, you have to vaccinate by eighteen months, and he was stood when, uh, prosecuted when he was when the girl was fourteen months. So there is criminal law in those countries, and there they can be, and sometimes are enforced to get parents not vaccinate. Uh, In Latin America, there are stronger mandates and laws. Israel doesn't have a mandate. So that's a quick snapshot of the requirements. There are very real differences among countries. Australia is now experimenting with two new laws in in specific states. This is a state-by-state thing in Australia. too. One is a no-job-no-play, which allows daycares and schools to keep out unvaccinated children. And the other is no job, no pay, which conditions certain benefits on getting vaccines.
0: In different countries, what do you think causes those differences?
1: Actually, I mean, it's part of the dramatic differences in other things. And the story itself is a little too complicated to go into. For example, in England, part of the resistance to mandates is a historical. Experiments, exper- Experience with laws requiring smallpox immunization, which triggered a very strong backlash, partly because they were enforced in very problematic ways, and because the fall- smallpox vaccine was really more dangerous than the vaccine. So it's a, it's, a state, it's a country by country a historical question. Countries do learn from each other, but a lot of it is country specific.
0: Well, I think those are all my questions for now. I wanted to thank thank you for giving up some time today to talk with me you for talking to me keep it up you seem to be doing a great job <clears throat>
1: thank
0: you well i hope everybody enjoyed our second episode again i did not get a lot of feedback from the first one uh, so please drop me an email we love at gmail.com send a private message to one of the two facebook pages americans for science or we love gmos and vaccines if you have any questions if you have any advice any tips I'll always be happy to answer questions on the air if you have any questions about biotechnology. And I especially try to reach out to the experts like I did today with uh, Professor Rice. In future episodes, I'm hoping to interview Professor Juma, has, has already agreed, as well as someone working on the Banana 21 project in Uganda that I actually had the opportunity to meet at the UN this past week. So if you like the show, uh, consider clicking the donate button on the americansforscience.org web- website i will definitely appreciate anything you can anything you can offer hopefully my next major purchase will be a mixer so i don't have to hold my speakerphone up to the mic and get some better sound quality for these phone interviews so this week of course i'd like to thank professor rice for joining us on the show uh, my wife for letting me get away from the kids for about a half hour to do the show and i hope everybody has a good thanksgiving thank you